All right, if you would turn to Romans chapter 13. Thank you, Jackson. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Maddie, for rescuing all of us this morning. Your bravery is commendable. All right, well, this morning we want to talk about um, the question that we have to make as a church that John, uh, Jackson prayed about. Um, this morning I realized that um, the question, the sub-question to the title of my message uh, should be addressed. Um, the question, who should we obey? Is that a, the, the proper way to say that? It is a popular way to say it. It's a comfortable way to say it, but actually it's not grammatically Correct. It should be, whom should we obey? We obey whom? Why would we say that? Well, why not just go along with the popular uh, feel-good way to say it as opposed to the rules? Because rules are in place for a reason. Rules actually help, and they're meant to guide us as we decide, do I say who or do I say whom? And the same thing applies to the issue of church and state. Um, Rules are important. And therefore, hopefully as we go through this this morning, we'll see how we need to think about the questions that we have to address in light of rules. The rule of law, the rule of God's word, and things like that. And so let me uh, read for us the first seven verses of Romans 13, and we'll go from there. In verse 1, it says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. This is the word of God. You know, during this pandemic and our um, political leaders' response to it, it has raised all kinds of questions for us as Christians. The questions revolve around what is the truth about what's going on? Uh, Who should we listen to and who shouldn't we listen to? Is the response of the government and what they're telling us to do biblical? Is it constitutional? Is it helpful or is it harmful? All those questions come into play as we wrestle with the ultimate question, what would God have us do? How can we be pleasing to God in this circumstance. We shouldn't be surprised at the tension between church and state, though. Uh, The tension between church and state has been around for a long, long time. You could 
take it as far back as you want. You could take it all the way back to Moses and Pharaoh. You could take it back to Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. You could take it back to John the Baptist rebuking Herod for having his brother's wife. You could focus on the crucifixion of Christ, which was the government doing something that they should not have done. They murdered an innocent man who was indeed the very son of God. You could take it back, and we'll talk more about this in a few minutes, to Peter's refusal to obey the Sanhedrin and stop preaching. You could even ask the same kinds of questions with regard to World War II and what Bonhoeffer did in supporting the attempt to assassinate Hitler. That was definitely an issue of the tension between church and state. If you read, obviously, in the Voice of the Martyrs and other publications, you can find out about the underground church in China and the conflict between church and state there. And if you read in Revelation chapter 13, you find the beast from the sea, which many people understand to be the state that persecutes Christians, that opposes the Christian gospel. And now, in our uh, pandemic of 2020, we have uh, the governor giving not simply a guidance, not simply a recommendation, but an order that carries with it enforceable um, criminal sanctions, probably a misdemeanor or something like that, but there could be more to it depending on um, what they decide to do. But it basically forbids churches to meet indoors and to do what we're doing today. Um, The question is, how should we respond? And that is the question that the elders have been wrestling with all week long. Obviously, we decided to meet today to try to think about this biblically and then have a meeting afterwards to talk about it before we move forward. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing. And as a basis for it, as Jackson highlighted, I want to try to frame our discussion. I'm not so much arguing for a position as I am arguing for an approach to addressing the question. So I hope you'll hear it that way because that's what my goal is in preaching from Romans 13 and bringing in some other scriptures as well. If you read Romans 13, And what Paul says here in this passage, and if you went on to read 1 Peter chapter 2 and what um, Peter says there, you would find a rule with no exceptions. And you can check it out in 1 Peter 2. Obviously, I don't see any, I don't think we can see any exceptions here in Romans 13. So that we have both Paul and Peter, the apostles of our Lord, telling us as a rule We are to gladly submit to the governing authorities. And it's very important that we take that very seriously and that we don't quickly rush over that. And as elders, we have not quickly uh, dismissed that in our discussions at all. And if you look at what Paul has to say in Romans 13, uh, you could point out a lot of different things that he says. I'm just going to point out three main reasons that he gives for this. Number one, if you look in verses one through four, he argues that we're to submit to government because government is of God. It's not of the devil. (laughs) Okay, sometimes we feel like government in general is just of the devil. It doesn't mean the devil isn't behind the government. That's what Revelation 13 is about. But government isn't inherently bad because it says 
in verse 1, those which exist, existing governments, the one exists that exists in California, in Sacramento now, and in Washington now, are established by God. Governor Newsom is there because of God. President Trump is there because of God. And it goes on to say in verse 4, it is a minister of God to you for good. So existing government, however it got there, uh, whoever it is, whatever it involves, is designed by God to be a minister of God to us, you and me, for good. Now, if we looked at Daniel 4, we see where Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had to be taught that uh, he should not think that he is the source of all the good that uh, is flowing from his administration, nor should he think he is independent of God. And so in that passage, that's when God causes Nebuchadnezzar to go out and live for seven years as an animal eating grass. And as a result... Uh, he is taught what it says in verse 32 that he will recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And so Paul isn't saying that government has absolute authority, that government is independent of God. No, it's established by God and it's established for good, but it is not independent of God. No government stands independent of God. Indeed, they're there by God's sovereign decree, and they're there under God. And it's very important that we keep that in mind. But again, they're there to bring about good. And that's why in 1 Timothy 2, if we had more time, I'd have you turn to these. The the, um, references are in your notes, and you can go back and look at them. But in 1 Timothy 2, we're told to pray for kings and all those in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So that government is meant to provide believers with an atmosphere, a condition of life in which we could have a tranquil and quiet life. Um, we could live out our, go- our Christian lives in all godliness and dignity, that we would be able to proclaim the gospel, because Paul goes on to say, Uh, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Then he says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. So in his mind, government is meant to order life in such a way that the church actually can function and proclaim the gospel. Um, Charles Hodge said, those in power are the servants of the people as well as the servants of God and that the welfare of society is the only legitimate object which they as rulers are free to pursue. And so uh, we need government. John Calvin said that, um, this is a quote from Calvin, he says, Were we like angels, blameless and freely able to exercise perfect self-control, we would not need rules or regulations. Why then do we have so many laws and statutes? Because of man's wickedness. For he is constantly overflowing with evil. This is why a remedy is required. And so government is a good thing because of the depravity of man. And so the idea of of not being in a society in which uh, there is the rule of law is a very frightening thing. And it should be a frightening thing. We need the rule of law. It's a good thing. It's meant to bring us good and to free us to do 
actually what God wants us to do. James Madison, who was uh, trained at Princeton when it was a Presbyterian institution, influenced by Calvin, actually used that same phrase in one of his writings when he said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. And so that was part of the understanding of our founding fathers as they established the government that we have. And so government is of God in general, and it is for our good. And that's important to keep in mind as we think about these things. Number two, in verses four and five, and this is related to some of the things I just touched on, but he says specifically in verses four and five that government is in place because of evil and the role of government in punishing it. In verse 4, it says, It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So it's meant to promote good in general, and one of the primary ways it promotes good is by opposing evil. If you don't oppose evil, then it's hard to promote the good. And so he lets us know that that's a primary function of government, and that's why the idea that government should not have a law enforcement arm to enforce the law is totally against God's design. Law enforcement is there for a reason. God intends for the law to be enforced. That's the whole idea of bearing the sword. It means there will be consequences if you disobey the law. And the sword in that day and time was meant for, in in capital um, capital cases, capital punishment, they use the sword to kill people. And so the reference to the sword is probably also a reference to the fact that the government can go so far as to take your life to enforce the law if it needs to. But that's an important role of government in um, promoting good and opposing evil. In First Peter 2, Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So even Peter reinforces the idea that the government is sent for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. The third reason is found in verses 6 and 7, which is we're to um, submit gladly to the government because the government needs our support. Government cannot exist without our support. It cannot exist without our money, and we know that. It cannot exist without our honor. If we just totally disregard the government, if we don't pay our taxes, uh, then there's a problem. And Paul actually says in verse 6, for, this, for because of this you also pay taxes. And then in verse 7 he says, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, we don't like paying taxes, um, but in principle, we should not oppose paying taxes. God says, it's by my design that people pay taxes to support a government that's meant to do you good and to actually free you to do what I call you to do. And that's why 
We have the story of Jesus when he's asked about paying taxes. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And that's why in Jeremiah 29, God tells the people um, in Babylon, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will have welfare. And so as you pursue the good of your society by properly supporting the government, then you pursue not only society's good, but your good as well, God says. Uh, Charles Hodge again says, Since civil government is constituted for the benefit of society, for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those that do well, you should cheerfully pay for its support. Now, we may need to pray on that one a while. But that's the reality. Um, so we need to get fixed in our mind that there is a rule that we don't simply automatically say no to something that the government tells us to do. In fact, uh, the rule should be I will say yes to what the government tells me to do because God tells me to do that. The question is, though, when we read Romans 13 and we find no exceptions, and we read 1 Peter 2 and we find no exceptions, does that mean there are no exceptions? If you read the book of Acts, you find both Peter and Paul acting on the exceptions. And that's what I want to bring in at this point is to say that they would say, yes, there are legitimate exceptions to the rules that we've laid down in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. And the first exception is except when the government opposes the law of God. Now, there are some exceptions we make that should not be made. Like, I don't like the law. I don't want to drive 55. That's not a legitimate reason uh, to exempt yourself from obeying the law. Or, I don't like the lawgiver. I don't like the ruler. Um, I think Trump is rude, crude, and socially unacceptable. Well, it doesn't matter what you think about the personality of the one in power. If it's the law, then you just can't simply write it off because you don't like the ruler. Or, you can't simply say, I prefer God to rule over me directly, which is actually what the Jews would have said. The Jews got in a lot of trouble because they kept rebelling against the Roman government. And there, were, there was a significant group of Jewish people in Rome at the time that Paul wrote Romans 13, and he was telling the Christians in Rome, don't be like the Jews who are inclined to just rebel against the Roman government. Don't do that. Just be, and don't argue that, you know, God's my king. Don't argue, I'm waiting for the Messiah, and he's going to crush all other governments. Yes, God is your king, and yes, the Messiah is going to come and crush all other governments, but God still wants you right now to obey the government he's placed over you. And so that's why Paul wrote Romans 13 to the believers in Rome. So we have to be careful of making exceptions that aren't legitimate exceptions. But we see in the book of Acts that there are, there are a couple very important legitimate exceptions to the rule. And the first one is whenever the government opposes the law of God, then we need to obey God and not men. That's, the, that's what we see happening in Acts 4 and Acts 5. In Acts 4, 
We have the healing of the lame man. And uh, Peter and John are having to give an account of themselves, of why they're preaching and teaching, and and um, the uh, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the authorities there are commanding them not to speak and preach in the name of Jesus. And in chapter 4, verse 19, Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to, than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Then in chapter 5, you've got the authorities arresting all the apostles. An angel lets them out of jail. They go and preach in the temple. They re-arrest them. And they, they say, didn't we give you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name? And in verse 29 of Acts 5, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And again, Charles Hodge said, whenever obedience to man is inconsistent with obedience to God, then disobedience becomes a duty. So there are times when it's very clear that the government is requiring us to disobey God, and that then it's very clear that our duty is to obey God and not the government. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, argued that in our day and time, lawyers have begun to think that law is higher than morality, meaning human law can trump God's law. And he argued that human law is supposed to reflect God's law, not trump God's law. It's supposed to apply God's law, not eliminate God's law. And therefore, we have to be careful of that taking place in any society under any government. The second exception is when the government opposes the law of the land. Now, this is different than Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 because the Roman government was not a constitutional republic. It was different. It was an empire, and it, depending on the, the age of the empire, by the end it was a dictatorship. And so there were rights that Roman citizens had, but they weren't necessarily all the same rights we have. But there were rights that were had. And if you read through Acts 16, you see Paul acknowledging that he, as a Roman citizen, had rights. In Acts 16, that's where the Philippian jailer gets saved. And what happens is uh, Paul gets annoyed with a slave girl who's fortune-telling and going around, you know, following them around and, and uh, identifying them as uh, men of God, so to speak. And Paul gets annoyed and casts out the demon. And when her um, employers find out that they can't make any money off her anymore, they uh, get angry and um, have Paul and Silas seized and brought to the chief magistrates, the authorities, and the chief magistrates beat them with rods and put them in jail. Then, that's when God shakes the prison with an earthquake, and the jailer's about to kill himself, and Paul says, no, don't do that, we're all here. And he comes in and he says, what must I do to be saved? 
And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household will be saved. And they preached the gospel to him and his household and he was baptized. The next day, the chief magistrates, the authorities, tell the jailer to let them go. And Paul says this in verse 37 of Acts 16. They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. Paul says, no, we're not going to obey the authorities. They have run roughshod over our citizenship as Romans. Let them come and escort us out themselves. The question is, why didn't Paul do that before he got beaten? Why didn't he say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. There are times when he brought up his Roman citizenship and used it for the sake of the gospel and the for sake of love. There are other times when he did not. He did not always say, I will hold on to my right as a Roman citizen. We'll say more about that in a few minutes. But it's important for us to realize that citizenship is important in this question. Paul saw citizenship as something that could be used for the sake of the gospel and should be used for the sake of the gospel in different situations and should not be something that's off the table in terms of our relationship to the government. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, Honor the king. And someone has said, We don't have a king in a constitutional government. So what does that look like? Well, technically speaking, in a constitutional republic, the king or the highest authority in the land is not the president, it's not the governor, it is the constitution. It's the highest authority in the land. And therefore, you could argue that to honor the king in our context is to honor the Constitution because it is, by design, in our kind of government, the highest authority. There, Back in the 1600s, there was the um, Lex Rex, or the Law and the Prince, written by Samuel Rutherford, who was a uh, Presbyterian minister, and he argued for constitutional government, limited government. He argued that the, the king wasn't the law of the land, but the law of the land was king, and the king was to be in subjection to the rule of law, that he was not free to do anything and everything that he wanted to do. There's a lawyer um, in the University of Virginia Law School who said, if there's one thing that can keep me awake at night, it's a vision which I sometimes have of this country being ruled by the wishes of its rulers and not by the rule of law. He said, it's too easy for a government to panic and set the law on one side because it happens to be inconvenient. Temporarily, of course, they always mean to bring it back again Sometime. Hodge said, officials are to be obeyed in the exercise of their lawful authority, which means when they're exercising their authority lawfully. And that's what we have to consider. The First Amendment guarantees 
the citizens of this country the free exercise of religion and the right of the people to peaceably assemble. That is our constitutional right. And the California Constitution, if you read it, says that we have that same right. It says, free exercise and enjoyment of religion without discrimination or preference are guaranteed. And it also says in the the California Constitution, the state of California is an inseparable part of the United States of America, and the United States Constitution is the supreme law of the land. So all those things say that it is not inappropriate for us to appeal to the Constitution with regard to our rights. Now, there is what is called the Emergency Services Act, where it does say that the governor can call a state of emergency when there is an existence of conditions. It names a lot of different things, including epidemic. So does the governor have the right to call for... um, different things to take place during an emergency. Yes, he does. He has broad powers. But constitutional lawyers, at least one that I saw, said, if you read what the Constitution says, it does not say that the governor has the authority to suspend the Constitution, California Constitution or um, the U.S. Constitution. Um, This constitutional lawyer goes on to say that the uh, Constitution, like many state constitutions, the Constitution in California talks about the fact that that there can be the lawful quarantining of people, but it only refers to sick people. There's nothing in the Constitution about quarantining healthy people or quarantining a whole population. And you can read it very carefully. And if you just look at the language, which is what you're supposed to do when you read the law, then it does not give that kind of power. Well, someone has illustrated this, and I'm going to have to wrap this up. Someone has illustrated this in this way. He said, if the mailman shows up at your door and orders you to have Fruit Loops for breakfast, I hope you would ignore him. And it doesn't really help his case to say that it isn't a sin to eat Fruit Loops. And it might even be helpful. It also doesn't help his case to claim the authority of the U.S. Postal Service. The USPS doesn't have authority over our breakfast choices. And it certainly doesn't help for him to threaten you with fines or misdemeanors if you don't comply. It's not loving or obedient to go along with delusions of authority. Our magistrates don't have the authority to command things outside of the jurisdiction assigned to them by our respective constitutions or by God. Now, this person would go on to say, it is a sin for them to grasp that fake authority and try to boss people around or threaten them. Love doesn't let friends disobey God like that. But it still doesn't settle the question. And that's why I put this last point in And this will lead into our discussion because it is a very, very important last point. We may voluntarily and temporarily suspend the exercise of our rights if it seems wise and good. Even if you argue, based on the word of God, based on the U.S. Constitution, based on the California Constitution, um, we still 
have to answer the question whether or not we're going to submit to this order or not. Why is that? Because we've already done it once. We spent 13 weeks not meeting. So either we argue we totally misunderstood the Bible and the Constitution and we should not have stopped meeting, which some churches have said. There are churches that have argued we're not going to stop meeting no matter what. And they haven't. They've continued to meet even though they've been told not to. I am saying that there is a basis for asking the question, do I set aside my rights under the circumstances? Now, why would I say that we need to answer that question and even ask that question? Because that's the way Paul operated. That's the way Paul operated in Acts 16. He, in some cases, did not bring up his rights as a citizen and allowed the government to mistreat him. Obviously, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of love, because he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. On the other hand, there were other times when he did. He said, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. You should not be treating me that way. I appeal to Caesar. I'm not going back to Jerusalem. And why did he do that? For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of love. So for Paul, the championing of our rights, the using of our rights, wasn't a given. It was something he did or didn't do based on what would be the best thing to do in light of what we're called to do as Christians and in light of the situation. And that's what we're having to wrestle with. If the mailman comes up to you and orders you to eat Fruit Loops for breakfast, even though you normally eat, um, you know, cream of wheat, um, do you just automatically say no? Well, you might say, you know what? I don't believe I have to, but all things considered, I think I will. That's what we did the first time. The first time we said, okay, I'll eat Fruit Loops. The question is, do we say, I'll eat Fruit Loops again? Even if we argue, I don't believe I have to eat Fruit Loops under the circumstances. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to be together this morning. We thank you for your word. Uh, Father, as we sing and wrap up this worship portion of our time together and as we move into a discussion of what's happening in our state and in our country and uh, seeking to apply what we've just heard. We ask that you would be with us and that you'd bless us and that you'd help us. And we pray that your will would be done because most of all, we submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.